Fisher. We're talking real money. Hey there, welcome to Talking Real Money, the Friday Q&A edition. I'm Don McDonald. So, so, so glad you could uh, join me for this podcast. We have a ton of questions to get to, and uh, you can send yours in as things come up. You know, you think, ah, this guy's trying to sell me something. Maybe I should check. Uh, is my portfolio properly diversified? I'm going to have enough to retire. How do I build an income stream in retirement? All of those questions and many, 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 many more, as long as they're money-oriented, are fair game on this podcast. So send those questions in. Actually, speak those questions in at TalkingRealMoney.com on the contact form. It is really, really easy to do. Just go to TalkingRealMoney.com and click on the contact form. And then there'll be a button that says, hey, record your question right here. It's so easy to do. And you should have a computer mic by now anyway. As a matter of fact, on some computers, the mics are just really darn good. So do that, and I'll answer those questions like I'm going to do literally right now. Hi, Tom and Don. Love the show. Question is about our retirement accounts. We have... Uh, Roth 403B under Fidelity and Roth IRAs under Fidelity. Within those, we have our S&P um, index. We have our large blend index, total market index. We have our small blend index, our international index, a bond index, and also a large value index. However, kind of hodgepodge here. We also have probably about six other funds that their expense ratios range from 0.48 to 0.76. That's my question. Are those, should we just leave those alone, stop funding them? Should we stop funding them and start exchanging them out into the index funds? Uh, Or should we just straight up exchange everything out and put them into these uh, six other index funds. Your suggestions. Thank you. Love the show. Bye-bye. Well, given the fact that uh, everything is inside retirement plans and therefore sheltered from taxes, I see absolutely no good reason, given the fact that you have above-average diversification, maybe too much, but we're not getting into the portfolio details, so I don't know a lot about it. But I would get those moved right away. I would just make it happen. There's just no point. I don't understand why you'd wait. The only reason that I can think of to wait would be a tax situation where you had a lot of capital gains and you wanted to mitigate that over the course of years, keeping your gains rate down. But you don't have gains, well, not taxable ones anyway, so it really doesn't matter. So would I get rid of them now? Absolutely. I would just make the change and I'd make the change wholesale because you know by making the change that you automatically, automatically increase your return by close to half a percent a year without the market doing a darn thing. So, yeah, make the change. Thanks for the question. And, oh, one other thing. You can call in questions at 855-935-TALK, 855-935-8255. As a matter of fact, on Saturday, we take your questions during our live show that runs from 3 to 5 Eastern Time, noon to 2 Pacific. And you can call that same number and talk to us live on Saturdays, 855-935-TALK. But now back to another question that came in through TalkingRealMoney.com. Hey, Don. Just wanted to say thank you. 
and all that you've done since I found your podcast in 2015. You have educated us in so many ways. One quick question. I'm 62 years old and have a very short life expectancy due to a medical illness. I plan on taking Social Security early at 63 and wanted to ask if I'm still working part-time and earn roughly 30000 but contribute to my pre-tax 401k of 10000 annually. Will these 401k contributions help me stay under the Social Security's earning penalty threshold of 21240 in 2023? Or will the Social Security's earnings test not take into account the pre-tax 401k contributions and then the penalty would kick in two for one? Appreciate your insight here. And again, thank you for everything you do. Oh my gosh, thanks for the nice words. And I am sorry to hear about your diagnosis. Although now you know something that most of us won't ever know. <laughs> We never know. We're all going to go. It's, I hate that. Uh, let's go to the question. You won't like my answer. Um, it's your gross income on which the uh, Social Security penalty is based. You don't reduce it with contributions to a 401 or an IRA. So um, the only good news is, is that when you take money out of a 401 or IRA, then it doesn't affect it, but it doesn't reduce that penalty. So you're stuck with it. I'm so sorry, but thank you for everything you said. And I wish you all the best for as much time as you have left. You take care. Keep listening. Now let's take another one. Hi, I'm Roxanne and I'm 67. Looking forward to retiring someday. I love your show and have learned a lot. You explain financial concepts well and make me think more about my money decisions. I have a question for you today. Please explain the process and the pros and cons of using all or part of one's required minimum distribution, RMD, from a traditional IRA for charitable purposes. I look forward to your explanation. Thank you. Well, I'm so glad that we're able to help, and thanks for listening. Uh, What you're doing actually has a name. It's called a qualified charitable distribution. And a qualified charitable distribution is a means by which your RMD is delivered directly to the charities of your choice. And uh, then it eliminates the taxation on that portion of your RMD, whether it's a portion of it or all of it. And uh, there are some other tax, potential tax ramifications, but those really apply only to people who are really, 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 really wealthy most of the time. So, uh, But no, a lot of people use qualified charitable distributions. If you're forced to take RMDs and it's money you don't need and you're planning to give it to a charity eventually anyway, then why bother paying taxes on it now when you can partially or totally, totally avoid any taxation on it? So uh, yeah, I would absolutely set up some qualified charitable distributions with your uh, your IRA custodian. Thank you so much for calling. And again, you can call us at 855-935-TALK, which she didn't do. She did it the way I like it most, which is to leave the question at TalkingRealMoney.com using the contact form and then recording it through your computer. Because these days, you'd think with all the great technology that phone calls would be better than they were in, say, the 1970s. But they aren't. Uh Phone calls sound really bad because they've, they're compressing everything and they've 
slicing the bandwidth into such tiny slivers that that's i think that's part of the reason why people don't call and talk to each other anymore because cell phone calls just sound awful a lot of the time the actual ones that go through the you know verizon t-mobile at&t those guys it's different if it goes over the internet could be a lot better but uh that's a total aside. Anyway, leave your questions at TalkingRealMoney.com or call them in 24-7 at 855-935-TALK. And we're just, this is going to be a short Q&A because I'm saving some questions for when I'm on vacation. So I have plenty. So this is going to be the last question of today's episode. Here we go. Hi, Tom and Don. This is Kelly calling from Lake Tahoe, California. I have uh, two 403B questions for you. Up until recently, I have I thought I was fairly well diversified in my okay 403B options. Uh, S&P 500, Fidelity Small Cap, Vanguard Developing Markets, Fidelity Bonds. And then <clears throat> I had a small cap value of Janice Henderson, ticker JDSNX. They notified us recently that they were going to be Getting rid of that fund, it was going to be changing to Columbia Small Cap Value, C-L-U-R-X. Now, the annual operating cost went from 0.6 with Janice to 1.09 with the Columbia. That seemed really high to me um, for not that much better performance. I tried to compare them online, and I can't really compare the two. I reached out to the 403B guy who helps sometimes if he gets back to you. And uh, he said that it wasn't just about it being cheaper, it performed better. So any thoughts on that? Well, I'm going to take your question in pieces because it's a lot of stuff. Um, Let's first talk about the actively managed funds that this professional has sold you. Um, that perform better. (laughs) Ah, the lies my brokers tell me. Well, let's compare it, shall we? Let's compare that Columbia fund, C-L-U-R-X, a small cap value, to Vanguard small cap value index fund, which is V-S-I-A-X. The Columbia fund, as you said, expenses of 1.09. The Vanguard fund, expenses of Point zero seven, or about 1% per year more for the Columbia Fund. Yet, when it comes right down to it, they may have sort of outperformed the index a little bit, but, well, one of the issues is they didn't really outperform. The Vanguard Small Cap Value Index over the last 10 years, which is the only period we have for the for the Columbia, uh, earned an average of 8.24% per year, whereas the Columbia Fund returned about 7.6% per year. So they lost on that. But because they didn't, it wasn't a full point difference, it means they may have been successful stock pickers. However, their portfolio, see, they, they do it. What people don't tell you is that these things come at a price. And generally speaking, that price is some sort of increased risk they're taking. Because if you're in the Vanguard small cap value fund, you own 850 stocks. With Columbia, you own just over 100. So your inherent loss risk is higher. So it's it's hard to do an apples-to-apples comparison, but fees generally went out. 
So this person is not particularly good at telling the truth. Um, In other words, this is probably a salesperson or a relatively incompetent advisor. Now, on to the rest of your question. We might split it up again. I kind of got irritated and sold the Janus and went into J.P. Morgan equity and a fidelity mid-cap. So hopefully I did an okay thing on that. Both of them are really low, 0.03 and 0.7. Split the difference between those two. My second question is... With a 403 or a 401k, if you're in a target date fund and you have an overall operating cost for the target date fund of 0.45%, then within that fund, each one of the 10 different stock funds has its own operating cost. Are you paying that 0.45 on top of each of the 10 funds, what you're paying for each of those. I don't know if that makes any sense, but I haven't been able to find the answer to this question. And it just seems like that's a lot of fees that you're paying to be in a target date fund. Um, Hope that makes sense. Thanks so much for what you guys do. You're really helping those of us who are trying to do this on our own. So much thanks to you guys. Whoa, your um, your 403 is a mess. This is the problem with 403 investment options and management just tend to be so horrible. They're truly, truly awful in most cases. And I don't know why. I just really don't know why school districts and hospitals can't find a way to get their investment act together. But they, they, they don't seem good at this. Uh, you've got a mess. Uh, I don't know what J.P. Morgan fund you have. The only J.P. Morgan equity fund I could find was J.P. Morgan Equity Income, which has a seven tenths of one percent expense ratio, which is really high. Plus, you got the you just got it's a mess. But let's get to your question about target date funds. Now, if this was fifteen years ago, what you're worried about could be happening. But today, a fund of funds or a target date fund, which is a fund of funds, has to has to report the total expense ratio for everything across the board. So you may have some higher ones and some lower ones. And what they're saying is that averages out across the whole portfolio, including their costs, 2.45. So while that's high, I think, for for a uh, target date fund, when I can find them for a quarter of that, it's not so awful that I would freak out. But again, Clear as mud, aren't they? They're just the, the transparency. You got to marvel at the lack thereof. It's just a really, it's a corrupt industry. I'm sorry. It's a, it's generally a corrupt industry, particularly on the 403B side of the ledger. And um, people say, well, you know, we're, we're doing, uh, we're doing people a service. At least we're getting them to invest. No, no, no. You're doing them a huge disservice because you, you are taking advantage of their naivete or, or your company is taking advantage of your naivete that you don't know as much as you think, you know, and I bet that's the case in most cases that the people selling these products are taught how to sell and they're given road answers to provide. 
But when it comes deep down to it, they can't tell you what you're in. They can't really explain it, how it works, how it's managed, how the funds are run, what fees are charged and what those fees do and uh, how these things interact and how much better index funds are. They, I guarantee the vast majority of people in the financial services industry has have never read the academic research on empirical investing. They just don't do it because they believe in magic or they just believe in making the sale. Well, that's it for today's episode. Thanks for being a part of it. I really, truly appreciate you being out there. And I hope you'll take some time to tell a friend or two or ten that we're truly trying to help people on this program. As as a matter of fact, we're truly trying to help individual investors do it better, not just through this program, because we honestly offer the services of our advisors for a little while for free. So if you're one of those folks who's looking at a hodgepodge and going, oh, please tell me what I've got and how I can fix this, we will, and we won't try to sell you anything. I mean, we love it when people become clients. We do, and we think we do a great service for them. But we want to make sure that everybody has access, at least, to someone who they feel they can trust to give them an honest answer about what their portfolio looks like. So set up an appointment with one of our advisors, and I absolutely cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, as we said as kids. Isn't that disgusting? Think about that. Uh, It just is. We're violent little things. Uh, That you will not, you will not be pressured to buy anything. Promise. You'll just get help. So go to TalkingRealMoney.com, click Meet an Advisor, and join us on Saturday. Tom and... I will be hanging out for a couple of hours taking live questions at 855-935-TALK between the hours of 3 p.m. and 5 p.m. Eastern Time, noon to 2 Pacific Time at 855-935-TALK, 855-935-8255. So if you want to talk with us, call then. If you want to just ask questions, call anytime. And, of course, send your questions in at TalkingRealMoney.com. We'll be back here really soon doing what we do, and that is, you know, Talking Real Money. We hope you realize that the information provided on Talking Real Money is for informational, educational, and hopefully enjoyable purposes only. Providing personalized financial planning or investing advice takes time, so please consult with a really good fee-only fiduciary investment, tax, or legal advisor. We know a good one. Investing must always involve risk. In other words, you can and probably will lose money at times. Also, as much as you want it, no one can accurately and consistently predict the future, so past performance doesn't tell you a darn thing about what the future will bring. Unlike many other programs that say something similar, Talking Real Money is not trying to get you to buy or sell any financial products or securities. Instead, the program is provided as a public service by Appella Capital, a fee-only registered investment advisor. Thanks for listening, and please visit TalkingRealMoney.com for more information and disclosures. Are we done now?